Hello, welcome to this week's Q&A podcast, part of the Forever Athletic podcast with me, Coach Dean Wood. And we've got three questions today from clients and from people on Instagram. First one is from one of my long-term one-to-one clients, Sue. She's an absolute legend and she's a former GP, which may give this question a little bit more context. And it's essentially, what are my thoughts on ultra-processed foods and health and their recent link to cardiovascular disease. So this is kind of prompted by two studies that got released last month, I think, one by the University of Sydney that was linking uh, higher intakes of ultra-processed foods in women to increased incidences of high blood pressure, and then a study that's come out of China uh, that was linking higher intakes of ultra-processed foods with higher incidences of things like stroke, heart attack, angina, those sort of cardiovascular diseases as well. That second one is, I think it's the second one, the other two was a meta-analysis, which is a very reliable sort of study because that is a study that brings together all the studies on a topic and kind of sifts through them, make sure which ones are valid, which ones aren't valid, and then just kind of pulls all the research together and gives you an overlying look into what they all say, what they kind of agree on, what they don't agree on, and what would essentially be uh, the consensus on the research at the minute. So there's obviously something there. But firstly... I think it's important to define what an ultra processed food is because it's not as simple as it may initially seem. So the British Nutrition Foundation's definition will be along the lines of foods that are nutrient poor, energy dense, so they've got loads of calories in them, but not much nutrition. And they'll be high in things like saturated fats, sugars and salt. So that definition is really quite broad. It will include everything from your kind of traditionally accepted kind of poor food choices, things like fizzy drinks, chocolate bars, sweets, um, processed hot dogs, ready meals, breakfast cereals, those sorts of things. But it'll also include stuff that would maybe be recommended as part of a healthy diet and things that I would recommend that people would have on a regular basis. So things like wholemeal or whole grain bread that has been processed. That was a grain out in the field at one point. It very much isn't a grain right now. It's been turned into this product. So there's a lot of processing that goes on in that. Greek yogurt, cheeses, smoked meat, smoked fish, those sorts of things that can be really useful, delicious parts of a really healthy diet. So they themselves, the British Nutrition Foundation, would say that that definition isn't wholly helpful. It's a bit of a catch-all for a lot of things. It kind of needs to be, but in the same way, it isn't necessarily that helpful. And it's important to understand that every form of food processing isn't abhorrently bad. Some of them are okay. Some of them are much more kind of extensive and take a product really, really far away from what it should be, whereas some actually make some really useful products. So it's important to, to take that into mind. And there are links between higher intakes of ultra-processed foods and cardiovascular disease, episodes of things like high blood pressure, angina, stroke, heart attacks. So we do need to take this seriously. So even if the definition maybe isn't as clear as it could be, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't kind of write it off. This is actually quite a serious thing. But a problem with a lot of nutritional science is that it's often observational based just by the nature of what we're studying. So any kind of physiological and health changes from nutrition, they're going to be chronic effects. So they're going to take time to accumulate. You don't just kind of eat one Russell's burgers burger that you bought from uh, Little Tesco down the road and then immediately have a heart attack afterwards. You have to eat those things repeatedly, consistently over time to have these chronic effects on your health. 
and to look at these things over time we have to do these observational studies in which it becomes harder to control the other lifestyle variables so things like activity levels stress levels sleep and all these other things that can have both positive but often a negative strain on our bodies as well so we can only associate these things with changes in our health and not label them as the root cause because we haven't been able to control for all these other variables as well so there could be somebody who's eating a lot of ultra processed foods but they're very active they're very low stress they're getting loads of sleep and stuff and they'll actually potentially be relatively healthy or not too bad whereas a lot of the people who will be having ultra processed foods will probably have lower activity levels as well they might be very high uh, in terms of their stress they may be getting poor sleep as well and you could attribute it to many of those things or potentially more likely the combination of those things as well so it is very hard in these science studies to put this thing as the single root cause of these problems it's often a bigger picture thing as well so just general people who have more active lifestyles and value their health will be doing all of these things together and people who are maybe less aware of it or it's a lower priority for them will be worse on these things in general and they all combine and that causes these changes to negative in their health essentially but what i do think so actually to get to the point of what i actually think about this kind of ultra processed food and health i think we need to have a level of food education in this country just to help make sure that people do understand what are good healthy foods whether they are slightly processed or not and what aren't and then the subsequent risks attached to that they're not defined outcomes but there are risks and they do uh, increase the risk of these outcomes for me personally fortunately with the people i do generally work with that knowledge isn't really the problem i'm rarely teaching people what good and bad food is it is something that's probably understood for you listening to this you probably do know that things like vegetables uh, lean meats and these sorts of things are generally good for you and things like russell's burgers um, and ultra processed foods like your super sugary breakfast seals and stuff probably aren't the best thing for you the thing you're probably struggling with is more of an application thing and accountability thing and just how do you make this fit sort of thing but i do think there needs to be a level of food education just to guarantee that everybody has an opportunity to learn these things but what i think is more important is making sure that the better foods are readily available to everyone and that needs to come from the top down and just to make sure that the better choices are easier for the vast majority of people to make much like i said kind of in the episode on tuesday in your own household of managing your environment in your house to help make things like better snacks the easier choice to have by having maybe some fruit on your dining table if you're working from home that's just going to stop you going into the kitchen and getting something super sweet and super sugary out of the cupboards we need to be doing the same in things like supermarkets as well and that would be ideal i was watching a youtube video the other day where somebody was comparing a north american kind of supermarket to a supermarket in sweden and they had all the healthier choices at eye level in a supermarket in Sweden. You could still get the ultra processed things, but they were out of kind of your immediate eye line and those sorts of things. You had to go out of your way just that little bit more to find them. Whereas if you go into a British supermarket, you can guarantee that the things are at eye level. Everything is just based on profits and sales and all these sorts of things. And it'll be the bright, the colorful, the exciting and those sorts of things, which aren't necessarily the best things for you. So I do think there needs to be a bit of a structural change there. But at the same time, we have to be honest. We're living in the middle of a cost of living crisis. It's quite clear that these things are not the highest priority for many of the people higher up in that chain compared to things like money and profits. So it's probably not going to change. And it's the lower income households that are going to suffer the most. 
And largely, I think that that is forced upon people. It's not necessarily a decision thing. There's things like food deserts where you just can't get to the good food that you want to have. The only things that you have close to you nearby when you don't have transport and you can't afford a car are your little Tesco down at the end of the road that doesn't have the full range of everything that you might need into it. And then obviously cost of living, affordability, the better products are going to be more expensive. The cheaper things are going to be ultra processed and done en masse, those sorts of things. The availability, and I'm sure kind of given the choice, most people would prefer to not live solely or to a large extent off ultra processed foods. But that is unfortunately the dystopian reality that many people are living in in this country and it's not necessarily a decision thing it's just an accessibility and availability thing and until there is a change in mindset at the top levels in this country it's probably not going to change in the meantime and there's only so much responsibility that individuals can make for that anyway this has got a little bit depressing so let's move on to the next question so question two how do you not their words not mine fuck everything off when you're injured so i've got three points on this one here. So first and foremost, hopefully you found a mode of training that you do because you love it. You love the benefits of it, both physically, but also mentally. The routine adds to your day, it keeps you structured, it makes you the better version of yourself. So for that, that there's more than just the one motivation for keeping doing it. And for a lot of people who are very intense on the gym, the main motivation will be improving performance, lifting heavier, building more muscle and all those sorts of things. And getting an injury can just kind of stop that in its tracks for a little bit but just remind yourself of the other benefits that you get from your training as well even if it's not the training that you ideally want to do and you would love to do if everything was uh, fine and dandy and normal but just remember those benefits mental benefits of getting in the routine and all that sort of stuff of just keeping you strict and honest and all those sorts of things getting yourself out of the house getting yourself away from work for a moment and those sorts of things so focus on those first because they're going to be hugely beneficial to your overall health and just general well-being as well. Then number two, depending on the injury, the vast majority of the time there is still plenty that you can do. And a lot of the time, those things that you can still do would be working on a weakness that you normally wouldn't work on because you'd be doing the things that you really enjoy and you're really strong at. So you can kind of flip your mindset around potentially and see it as an opportunity to do some different things and build up some different areas on, on um, your fitness. Again, it does depend on the energy uh, injury. There's sometimes that you do just generally have to take some rest, uh, illness and those sorts of things as well. But often there is something else that you can do and you can work on some weaknesses and just do something different. And by the time that you are fit and healthy again, you will be really ready to get back to your other stuff and you'd have some great sessions as well. So just keeping yourself in the routine would be great for it. Then I think it's important to remember that with some injuries, proactive rehab and staying active is better than total rest so an example that i've had recently is working on uh, tendonitis and tendinopathy uh, knees is something that i've done a lot of with this if you just rest it it will generally feel better but when you go back to using it it will go straight back to where it was before because things like tendons have really bad blood supply to them and the blood supply is going to be the key thing that's bringing in everything that your body needs to help repair and rebuild that kind of tendon so certain types of training are going to help promote that blood flow into that low blood flow area. Because if you just kind of sit around on your ass all day, there's going to be no blood flow kind of running around that knee joint sort of thing. So light biking is going to be beneficial. It's going to get you back to full health quicker. Doing some isometrics on 
a squat pattern or a hinge pattern or wherever that kind of tendon injury is can be really helpful for both loading the muscles loading the tendon without causing any more damage and again just getting a load of blood flow into that area so think about the things that you can do that will maybe help be a bit more proactive with that injury and get you back to full health sooner that's going to be obviously a massive benefit and then the final thing i wanted to say on this is just think about your mindset around the injury the common one and this can be coming from even your physio or your doctor or whoever you've gone to see the terminology matters so don't think about having a good side and a bad side. Say you've done your shoulder on one side, you haven't got a good shoulder and a bad shoulder. Try not to think about injured and non-injured. Terminology matters. Just think about involved and uninvolved. So you've got your involved side, your involved arm, your involved leg, whatever it is, and you've got your uninvolved side. Okay. And you can focus on that uninvolved side a lot and just keep on doing things with that. And there are studies out there that kind of say, if you do have a long-term injury, so say you've broken your arm or something like that, if you keep on training the uninvolved arm, you will lose less strength and less muscle mass in the uninvolved arm, even if you haven't exercised it in that period of time, just because you have trained the uninvolved arm as well. So just think uninvolved, involved, rather than this hard, positive, negative language on it. It does make a difference. It is much more positive in the way that you approach things and it will get you back to uh, doing some useful training a lot sooner. So hopefully that helps you not fuck everything off when you're injured. Okay, then final question for this week. Question three, dealing with inconsistent weeks. So where you run a calorie deficit, but then for whatever reason, you kind of eat back all of the deficit that you created either in a day or in a meal. And then you're back to square one and you feel like you need to starve yourself. How do you kind of avoid this cycle? and How do you work through it? So the first thing I would work on is with all of my clients, whether this is something that they consistently deal with or not, we work with range targets rather than hard targets. Okay. So for calories in particular, an example would be rather than aiming for 2000 calories per day, for example, we will have a range of say 1800 to 2200. It's much more forgiving and it gives you the chance to work towards that bottom end when everything's good, everything's easy, you're structured at work, you've got all the foods that you want available to you, all that sort of stuff. And then the days where things go to shit, you can just try and limit yourself to that top end and it gives you that bit more wiggle room. You've already got some kind of money in the bank essentially to spend later on and it just makes that whole process much more realistic over a longer period of time to stick to rather than to hit the same exact number day in, day out. And then you get this hard kind of I've won or lost feeling at the end of each day. It's like, oh, I went 100 calories over. I lost this day. That was not good enough. I need to do better tomorrow, all that sort of stuff. It can take that thinking out of the equation. So first and foremost, I'd make sure that you're working towards a range target. And every time you have the opportunity, kind of push towards the lower end of that when things are easy because it will just give you that extra little bit of wiggle room and help you to stick to it. In the example that I was given, the overeating in that day or that meal was kind of like a comfort eating sort of scenario. So whenever you've got a comfort eating thing going on, the first thing you need to think about is just targeting the cause of needing that comfort. So what is it that is making you potentially unhappy in that moment? And start thinking about that. I'm not going to dig too much into that because it can be massively variable to each person. Sometimes it's something that you can work on. Sometimes it isn't fully in your control. But think about that first because if you don't think about that, then this cycle is not going to stop. It's just going to keep on repeating. So you need to target the cause of needing your comfort first. Then you probably won't be able to fix that immediately and just turn it off. So think about other ways that you can get comfort, which is relatively in line with your goals comfort eating is only one way of getting comfort there are plenty of other things that you can get it from 
again, it's very variable person to person, so I'm not going to go into specifics, but there'll be a lot of things that you can do. And then if it does have to be food and you do want it to be food, this is still something that you can do, but can you get the same amount of comfort or 80 to 90% of the comfort from something like a smaller portion of the thing that you're going to have or a less energy dense version of it? If it's something like you just love a burger and chips and that sort of thing, can you get a smaller portion of chips? Can you get a different burger from something like the menu at McDonald's? Those sorts of things could be really, really helpful just for helping you keep on track and not letting these things totally throw you off your goals. And then finally, I'll just expand your time scale on everything. So people don't do great with their nutrition when they think about things just on a daily basis, on a 24-hour cycle. If you can extend that out to a week, it's much more forgiving. So rather than have a daily calorie allowance, you could think about it as a weekly calorie allowance. If you're struggling with that, you could extend it even further if you want to as well. Because if you have one meal that equals 2,000 calories and that takes you out of your calorie deficit, It doesn't really matter if it's the only meal out of 30 over a 10-day period and that sort of thing because the other 29 are going to be very in line with your goals and that average is going to really add up. So if you can expand that timescale out, it will take a lot of pressure off and it kind of makes that range target very applicable and easy to run. So hopefully that makes sense. So that'll be the end of this week's Q&A. If you want to learn a little bit more about how to work with me, make sure you do visit www.coachianwood.com. And if you want some smaller bite-sized examples of this very good training and nutrition advice, just check out my social media channels at Coach Ian Wood. And otherwise, I will see you on Tuesday for the next episode of the Forever Athletic Podcast.